Welcome to Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, uh, Jackie Kettler and Charlie Hunt, uh, all from the School of Public Service at, at Boise State. And man, we have an exciting show today. I'm actually, I think we're all a little excited to be here today because uh, for the first time in a long time, it's been a really exciting news week. I mean, it's not been, you know, those little one-offs, <laughs> like we're going to talk about the same story for like the 10th time and there's just a little other. It's like the, the state of the Democratic primary has changed drastically it, it, in the last week it shifted quicker than i thought it would so uh i saw some commentary that said this was uh joe biden's uh this was a comeback was the quickest most unexpected political comeback in american political history which i'm not sure like i would say i'd probably agree but little context uh before i, I throw it over to uh our chief democratic presidential primary correspondent uh, charlie hunt over there to fill in some of the details so last thursday at this time uh, it basically looked like Bernie Sanders was poised to run away with everything. Um, you had, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and uh, Amy Klobuchar kind of nipping at his heels, but distant second, third, and fourth. Mike Bloomberg was spending some money and might have like had had some spending a lot of money, spent a lot of money. <laughs> Might have had some potential to make some waves, but nobody was taking it really seriously. And then, for the most part, we assumed Joe Biden was dead in the water. All right, and then Saturday happens. And Charlie, what happened Saturday? Well, Saturday Saturday was a big deal because that was the South Carolina primary, which Biden was always expected to do really well in, primarily because most of the Democratic voters in South Carolina are black. And that has always been, in terms of the polling, Biden's strongest uh, constituency. He received a pretty major endorsement from uh, Jim Clyburn, the, the congressman from South Carolina and, you know, long adored civil rights hero uh on the democratic side uh and and throughout the south and so but not only did biden you know there was talk before last saturday that you know bernie may even sort of sneak up and win after having been so successful in the first three primaries and caucuses but not only did bernie not win but biden surpassed basically everyone's expectations in terms of even what the most generous polling had said uh, and that sort of began this kind of uh, avalanche of support that he received over the next few days that then resulted in what happened uh, on Tuesday, which which we'll get to. Was yeah. It, and I'm sorry, Jack, but I just to say again, I mean, to reiterate, uh, up until Saturday, Joe Biden was essentially dead in the water. And when South Carolina, I mean, he did very, very well. And then it changed his political force. I, I do yeah. think that the Biden campaign never really planned to do well until <laughs> South Carolina. Though. Yeah. So I think like their strategy was like, well, whatever, we're going to really pick up in South Carolina. And then knowing Super Tuesday had some states that would favor him but his campaign did not does and still does not have a lot of money especially compared to some of the other campaigns not near as much on the ground organization as other um, campaigns so that's kind of an interesting contrast there so uh after south carolina we see a couple of major candidates drop out um namely in the, the most important ones would be uh, mayor pete mm-hmm. um, and amy klobuchar and they throw their spot their support behind biden um which really helps uh coalesce around him as the moderate candidate right because that's really what the the territory they're all trying to stake out. And then Tuesday comes along. What happens on Tuesday, Charlie? Yeah, so, I mean, Tuesday was super for Joe Biden uh, (laughs) for for many reasons. He also, by the way, uh, before Tuesday, received the endorsement of Beto O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman who... Uh, almost won a Senate seat from Ted Cruz and also ran for president, um, got got a bunch of these endorsements. And 
Uh, on Tuesday, there were primaries in 14 states, and Biden won 10 of them. So, um, including some really big states like Virginia, like Texas, which he had been behind in, uh, like North Carolina, uh, and then won some surprise ones, surprise contests in places like Minnesota, Maine, and Massachusetts, which. Uh, Massachusetts, by the way, being Elizabeth Warren's home state, um, and and she did not do as well, and Bernie did not win as he may have been expected to, and so not only did Bernie <laughs> not win as many states as maybe was expected, yeah. the states he won, he didn't win with near the large margin that was expected. And again, the expectations going into Super Tuesday was that Bernie was probably going to have such a large delegate lead that nobody else was going to count uh, catch him before right. the convention, and it is not that way now. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing you saw happening on Tuesday is just how much winning South Carolina mattered. Uh, because, you know, the main split you see in the voters more than anything else besides, you know, black versus white voters was that the places Bernie did manage to do well or at least hold his own were places that had big early votes. And so these were voters that have voted before South Carolina. Um, Biden won. uh Biden uh, beat Bernie by 30 points among people who decided in the last four days before Super Tuesday. Um, and so, you, you know, he won Election Day voters by a huge margin, which showed sort of just how much of an impact winning uh, that that first primary had. And speaking to Luke, you brought up like the kind of the, that amazing comeback, that resurgence seems to be driven a lot by that momentum from South Carolina, because, again, he didn't have a lot of money. He didn't have a lot of campaigning in a lot of these states. So that momentum really meant something. And of course, after Super Tuesday, uh, Elizabeth Warren has now dropped out of the race, as well as um, uh, Mike Bloomberg. That's um, right. So, I mean, this is, is really gone from a crowded, fragmented field to a two-man race. It right. was gone from Sanders out in front of everybody to Biden essentially leading it. So essentially to say, if you took a long weekend, you came back to a completely different uh, race for the Democratic nomination. Char so it's been an exciting week. Charlie, one thing I read was that Biden's only has a slim lead in the delegates right now, right. but that it may, but that may be enough for him to be successful. Yeah, a big reason for that is that you know uh, the Democrats uh, tend to allocate uh, delegates proportionally, state by state, and so you know there's there's a way in which uh, you know even if Bernie can notch some wins. Uh, it's unlikely he's going to notch them by so high a mark. He has to ha essentially have some blowouts in order to really catch up in the in the delegates. And and I think in the next segment we'll get to you know some of the upcoming states, including Idaho. Um, but I think you know for me the 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 big story out of this is that it's not. It doesn't seem to me so much that that folks were Democrats were trying to get behind or coalesce around a moderate candidate. They're trying to coalesce around a candidate who they think can beat Donald Trump. And whether they're right or wrong about that, uh, you know, they've decided that that's Joe Biden. And they were looking for any kind of a sign that that was the case. And then his big win on South Carolina Saturday seems to have been that push that a lot of voters needed. Uh, who may may like Bernie, may actually even agree with him on a lot of the issues. Um, but you know, among voters who said that their top uh, their top goal was to beat Donald Trump, uh, Biden won those voters by 22 points. Um, and then, whereas Bernie won among voters who thought it was more important that a candidate align with their values. And so that that to me has been like one of the big stories of the campaign and I think is something that's going to play out, especially now that Biden has a lot of momentum. Well, I mean, that's uh, really been a, a 
a very consistent narrative since uh, Sanders took control of the race, which was, can he really beat Trump? And that's what a lot of people have been pushing back for. I mean, you really saw Mayor Pete step up his, his attacks before he left the race, which is Sanders cannot win a general election campaign. I mean, I think the, the a lot of for a lot of Democrats, I mean, the, the the need to unseat Donald Trump is so high that they'll pick anybody that they think will beat him. And I, I think the, I think you're right that a lot of them would probably prefer Bernie Sanders and some of his progressive uh, stances. They just don't believe he's going to win a general election. Yeah, and this has been sort of a, a trajectory the whole time of sort of voters acting as pundits, and you know, pundits aren't even that good at acting as pundits. So uh, I can't <laughs> I, I can't blame voters. You know, it's not up to us to decide what voters use as their criteria. If that's their criteria, then that's the way it is. And so, um, you know, I think I think that that may be tough for a lot of Bernie voters to hear. But you know, this is the primary he's running in, so so that's going to be the way it is. Yeah. All right. So really exciting stuff. Um, and so that's kind of a, a recap of what's happened the last week. Uh, and namely to say that, um, you know, this this election and this race to the nomination is starting to, to come. That murky picture is starting to get a lot clearer. So in the next segment, we'll be back and we'll talk about what we expect to happen in the next couple of weeks and how all this is going to play out. So um, we'll be back in just a minute. Yeah, listening to 89.9, 93.5 Radio Boise. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right, we're back on Big Tent Radio here talking about the uh, race to the Democratic nomination for president. Um, And as we talked about in the last segment, the last week's been super exciting. Uh, We went from a really murky, not sure what's going to happen, full uh, uh, lots of candidates out there in this race to really a two-man race between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, right? And so um, this this picture is starting to come a little clearer what's going to happen on on this uh, this side of the aisle or or this part of the race. Um, So I I think in this segment, we're going to talk about what we can expect moving forward, some of the things to look at, some things to watch for, maybe some of our expectations. And, you know, we're, we're willing to go out there on a limb and just, you know, shoot in the dark conspiracy theories. That's what we do on the show. Yeah, we're in the, we're in the prediction business around here. Yes, and we're very, very good at it. Um, that's why we're on Radio Boise. Well, well, it's a little easier now that there's just a couple, right, instead yeah. of like a That's a right. Ton. we got a 50-50 shot of being right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and of course, for here in Idaho, we have our primary coming up next that's week right. on the 10th. And so that's part of, you know, getting excited. There's been early voting has been going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then what will happen on Tuesday will be exciting to see. Yeah, and I think for a number of reasons, not just because we have it here, but also because there are a number of other states. So next Tuesday is, in addition to Idaho, we have uh, Washington, North Dakota, Mississippi, Missouri, and Michigan. Lots of M states clustering on the same day. And, um, you know, it's the, some of those states are in flux. Uh, you know, they're you know mississippi for example and missouri especially because they have you know really high african-american populations biden's expected to do really well there whereas uh you know they're also like pretty um they're pretty conservative centrist states like so that that there's also that kind of element to it too and that they um are kind of republican leaning states those types of things absolutely and i mean you see sort of the same trajectory for example in the opposite direction, Washington is also that day. Bernie's probably expected to do very well there. Here, here in Idaho as well, I expect Bernie to do pretty well. Yeah, I'm sort. Of, I'm sort of curious, Jackie, in in the Democrats sort of switching from the 
uh, the caucus, if, which I wasn't here, but if I'm not mistaken, they had a caucus in 2016. Uh, they Perhaps they foresaw the mess that would happen in Iowa a few years later. Uh, well, we kind of had a mess here in 2016. So <laughs> Right. What do you foresee as maybe some of the potential uh, impacts of switching over to sort of a statewide primary? Yeah, I think so. Bernie Sanders won Idaho in 2016 with 78% of the vote. Like that wasn't even close. Right. It was a huge win. Um, I mean, we're a small state. We don't have a ton of delegates. Um, but I think ha- switching to the primary this year, we will see an increase in popular like turnout in the primary, and it'll be a broader um, population that'll turn out. And so I think. I think Bernie will win again, but I think Biden's going to do fairly well. And it's not going to be as close. It's going to be much closer than it was in 2016. And I think, you know, we saw sort of similar things. There were other states that have switched from caucuses to to primaries. And generally, we've seen Biden doing better than Hillary Clinton did in those areas. So that that certainly seems right. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, there, there are sort of a few outstanding questions here. One is that, you know, there are some sets of voters that either Bernie has done really well with or Biden has done really well with. You know, we, we talked about African-American voters, whereas Bernie's tended to do better with Latino voters. This other sort of set of voters that, uh, you know, mainly in the Midwest, the, the sort of non-college educated white voters that Donald Trump did such a formidable job switching over from voting for Obama. And that's sort of a group of voters that we've sort of heard from. But, you know, we still have sort of primaries ahead in Michigan and Ohio and and Pennsylvania uh, and Wisconsin that are, you know, the, the you know, kind of the four of the big states that uh, Trump flipped. And so, you know, that's sort of a group of voters that that, you know, I'll sort of be looking for in terms of which which candidate tends to do better with them. So we have uh, so we have a big day coming up on Tuesday with another another series of primaries. Um, and then at some point, I guess, in July, we have the, the convention. Right. That's right. Um, so. Help us help help us imagine this for the audience. Like, when are we going to get more clarity on this? I mean, do you think this is what's the possibility we still get to a contested convention? What's the possibility that this gets settled in March, possibly April? Like, what are some of the choke points that are that we should be looking at and trying to figure out what's going to happen here? Yeah, I think like a brokered convention still possible, where mm-hmm. the for, for where one candidate doesn't get a majority of the first round like delegate votes. Right. Um, but now that we're down to two, it may be a stronger. I mean, it, I mean, we were talking about Bernie not ha- you know being the front runner, but not having a majority a couple like a week ago. Now we're thinking about Biden in the same situation. So it is interesting. Sometimes things can change quite quickly, you know, really quickly. Yeah, it, it seems possible that this will sort of end up going in the same kind of trajectory that 2016 did where Bernie continued to win states and and accumulate lots of delegates but it just wasn't enough to catch up to Hillary Clinton or in this case Joe Biden um, and so you know there's but the thing is there's still a lot of really big states uh, uh, coming up so you know Michigan is probably the 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 sort of big bellwether next week uh, but then coming up after that in the weeks to come we have Florida Arizona Illinois, Ohio, uh, those are all uh, the following week, um, I, th- I believe. I saw some polling from Florida. I mean, Biden has a he huge has an, lead. A really enormous and I think shockingly huge lead. Uh, and so that doesn't bode well for for uh, Bernie, particularly in these sort of either, you know, southern states or sunbelt states. So, you know, Arizona maybe is not looking so good for Bernie. And so what he needs is to absolutely clean up in the Midwest, which 
doesn't necessarily seem like a uh, a lock for him because there are there are a lot of African American voters in the Midwest. There are a lot of people who are, who have fond memories of Joe Biden. Biden's from Pennsylvania, um, so it's it's seeming tougher for uh, for Bernie now that they are sort of at parity. And and as we were talking about Jackie before, you know, netting delegates is uh, big amounts of delegates is going to be I think uh, I think pretty pretty difficult for Bernie going forward. Generally, the rest of the calendar demographically looks a lot friendlier to Biden than to than to Sanders. So with that being said, uh, what do you think the possibility is that Bernie drops out before the convention? You think he's going to take this fight to the floor? I mean, he didn't in 2016. So no, <laughs> we're, we're, we're expecting an exciting convention this year. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I don't see. I, I mean, I, it'll probably end up kind of being in the same trajectory. I think even if Biden doesn't get enough uh delegates to win on the first ballot bernie in the last debate was the only one on record saying that he thought that the person with the plurality if not the majority of delegates should win of course that's because he thought he was the front runner (laughs) at the time and that that was the most likely scenario but you know uh we'll see how he feels about that maybe at the end once biden has a little bit more than him so Let's uh, assume for a moment that we do get a broker convention, contested convention. These these candidates are, are neck and neck going in. How does this affect uh, the Democrats headed into the, the general election? I mean, I think the concern would be, it, like similar to 2016, that some of the Bernie supporters or voters would then not support if it was Biden, Biden in the general election. Either they didn't turn out to vote or they do like a protest vote and vote for someone else. And so I think um, that will be the main focus is how do we rally all the party um, around the nominee. Yeah. And I think and again, this is sort of a similar question to 2016, where you have, you know, and we've talked about sort of Sanders's kind of uh, fan base before in that, you know, some of them, uh, especially, you know, on Twitter and and online have been, you know, fairly aggressive and saying, you know, never, I'm never going to support anyone except Bernie. But the question is, you know, how representative that really is of the of the base of voters who actually go and vote for Bernie Sanders in these races. And I think, uh, you know, there's no doubt that that uh, disaffected Sanders supporters had some effect on the 2016 general election outcome. But I think in general, it's probably somewhat overblown based on just sort of the kind of fights that can happen that have been happening online that there's been a lot of focus on. But actually, that's not necessarily a huge amount of people. At least that's probably what Joe Biden is hoping uh, anyway, if, if he does turn out to be the nominee. So is there any benefit uh, on the Democratic side for essentially all the spotlight on the presidential race to be on the Democrats while we're largely not talking about Trump and his campaign at this point, even though he's out there holding rallies and he's actually running right now, we're just not talking about it. So is there a, there a benefit for stretching this race out for a while? There could be. I mean, if it stays, if it stays relatively positive, I think there is also the element of, you know, as Jackie was saying before South Carolina, uh, you know, Biden was not running a great campaign in terms of his ground game, in terms of his messaging, in terms of his debate performances, though I think he's actually been a lot better in the last couple. I think he's I think he's started to find his rhythm. So there's a way in which, you know, putting him through the paces and Bernie's a tough campaigner. So if Bernie can kind of really put him through his paces and put him through a few more debates, you know, that might be something that Biden is thankful for down the road rather than him just sort of rather than this having been just like a coronation 
situation where Biden just wins by acclamation and sits on his laurels. Well, and not thinking about just the general election, but about the party's positions, there are some thought that that can help push the party mm-hmm. to where their voters want to be. And so like that may also push Biden and Sanders to have to clarify their ideas, those types of things. Interesting. So uh, while it's been an exciting week, we expect a lot more excitement over the next couple of months. Hopefully we'll come back uh, Thursday and we'll have another set of exciting news about some primaries and some shakeups that have happened. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a story that we'll continue to follow through uh, out the rest of the summer and on into November. Um, but we'll be uh, right back in just a minute. All right, welcome back to the Big Tent. Um, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the coronavirus, which has some really interesting governmental response questions um, that we're going to turn it over to Luke to talk a little bit about. Yeah, so this has been an interesting story um, that's really been going on a couple of, uh, for a couple of weeks, and we talked about it uh, several weeks ago on the show when it start, just started to amp up. Um, I guess the, the big kind of... Um, updates that story that I have kind of continued to push this into the headlines is the number of cases that have popped up in the U.S. Um, currently, there's 164 cases in 16 states. Um, there are pockets of, of outbreaks, we'll say, quote unquote, in Italy and South Korea. Um, there's, you know, some scattered other cases around the world, I think 92,000 across the, the globe. I mean, again, the majority of these would be in China where the virus originated. Um, so, a lot of fear out there, um, a lot of uh, governmental responses, a lot of planning. Um, honestly, I, I'll be critical of the media, everybody but the radio boys in the Big Tent right now, because I think a, a lot of uh, pundits out there are stoking fears about this and making it something bigger than what it is. Um, for the most part, it is um, it is a, da- a dangerous virus, but it's really similar to the flu and symptoms. Uh, and unless you're you know immunocompromised, you're very old, very young, have some type of chronic illness, for the most part, healthy healthy adults are, are, are surviving this. Like um, many of them don't even need treatment, correct? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so many of them are, are just are, are going through. And it's possible that the 164 cases that we're actually know, there's actually lots more cases that we don't know exist um, because people are just like, oh, this is a bad cold, right? And so, uh, for instance, in Washington, the major- there has been several deaths in the state of Washington, but the majority of those happened within a nursing home where people were infecting each other and again when you have older adults with the compromised immune systems um so but this has led to a, a lot of uh, very interesting things that have happened um namely around the fears of this um and namely how governments are responding to it um, one of the things is we've definitely seen a huge drop in the market um that'd be the nasdaq and, and a lot of other things that down uh, the the indexes and all this kind of stuff um for you know two reasons one is is anytime there's fear of uh, fear and uncertainty people pull money out of the market the other thing is china in response to this, and their government response is to essentially shut down a lot of things, including their factories. So there's not as many goods being pr- uh, produced out of China or shipped to the U.S. And again, that's causing business continuity issues around the globe. Um, and so this is having really huge economic impacts. And to link this back to our our previous segment and talking about the the presidential race, I mean, this does create economic uncertainty and it does create issues going into election years, which are all very important for us as as we look at public affairs. So with that in mind, you know how how has our government responded so far. So I, I saw, for example, that Congress approved, I think, a little over $8 billion, right, in emergency aid. Um, you know, there's been uh, some, uh, as, as always tends to happen, some controversy around how President Trump has responded. What's been sort of the, 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 the way our government has, has responded to the few cases we've seen mainly on the West Coast? So it's, 
it's kind of been varied, and it depends, right? Um, certainly, uh, states like California, Washington, Oregon, where there's been a lot of cases, uh, have responded more aggressively. Um, they're they're actually out there operationalizing things. Uh, like you said, the, the federal government has authorized some funding. Most of this funding is being trickled down into state and local governments who are then developing plans, trying to put things uh, plans in place as they kind of adapt to the local uh, circumstances. Who are? It's state and local governments that are usually leading the responses in these types of situations, correct? Yes, uh, almost always. And again, as I always tell my students, there are very few agencies or federal agencies that are boot, quote unquote, boots on the ground, which means they're out there like federal employees physically giving public services. Tends to be how we do, we manage all of our programs is through state and local governments and public health is is a really great example of that because all of this federal funding is just ending up in places like the Idaho Depo- Department of Public Health who are then using it to fund the responses of this level. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things like that. I can say, you know, speaking, you know, from the, the perspective of say Boise State, which is a state agency um we are uh, the the university leadership is giving out notices to hey um use best practices with washing your hands try not to you know cough on people or, or share germs try not to be exposed to other people's germs if you're sick don't come to work um develop co- business continuity plans so if people are out for a while like the university doesn't shut down so a lot of these just kind of best practices let's be prepared if the worst does happen even though I mean, honestly, the the possibility of the worst happening is pretty low. I mean, there's not really that many cases comparatively, and the people that are getting sick are kind of sick for a couple of weeks, but it's not really that terrible of a, a pandemic. The state of Idaho has created like kind of a, a working group around the issue. They've launched a website where you can see the number of people um, being tested. Um, so far, we do not have any confirmed cases in Idaho, but all that information is kind of under the Idaho coronavirus um, group. Well, now, you know, you brought up testing, and it feels feels like a lot of the what a lot of people have been talking about in terms of what some possible problems are is that we at least the U.S. maybe does not have the amount of tests it would like to have uh, in order to be able to you know test everyone that comes through and confirm whether they actually have the illness or not like at the some of the the uh, representatives of what Jackie just described in the state of Idaho, uh, you know, I heard the other day we're talking about, you know, we probably do have some people in the state of Idaho with coronavirus, but we we either can't test them or they are, you know, as Luke was saying, you know, he- otherwise healthy people who, you know, we're just not, you know, really maybe ever going to know that they had coronavirus. Well, also go along with that. There's been uh, several stories that have popped up uh, maybe in the last week or so that basically said people have gone in to be tested for this. And if you don't have insurance, the test and the subsequent all the medical bills are thousands and thousands of dollars. So there's really an economic disincentive that, again, links back to the entire election that we're talking about uh, that's coming up in these health services and how, how we pay for this. But if you don't have good health insurance, there's a huge disincentive to go into the doctor. And so if you have the sniffles and a cough, you might be like, well, this is probably just a cold. I'm not going to pay hundreds of dollars or even thousands of dollars to get tested and go through this. So there's a lot of people that, again, may be exposed to this, may have it, that are just not going and seeking treatment for it. Well, and whether you uh, whether you get tested or treated or not, you're still a carrier, right? And so, you know, that's still sort of continually an issue. Well, a question I have is sort of about, you know, there's, of course, been a lot of controversy about how, you know, this, the messaging that President Trump has been doing around this, sort of questioning, questioning the WHO's fatality rate and, you know, que- sort of being really focused on whether or not we can get a vaccine really quickly, which it doesn't seem like we can do. What Luke, what's sort of the role of kind of, uh, you know, leadership and communications in sort of situations like these? So I, I will say that 
I don't think he's necessarily executing it well, but I think what Trump White House is trying to do and what they should be trying to do is trying to stop the people from being as f- afraid of this as what they had. And again, like I said, to, to start the segment out, I think the media stoked a lot of fears here, which they mm-hmm. shouldn't have. And so I think the Trump administration, what they should be trying, and they're doing it, but not necessarily very well, is basically saying this hasn't, isn't actually that big of a deal. We shouldn't be hoarding things like hand sanitizer. You don't have to, you know, buy Theraflu and lock your way uh, yourself away. Like, just be calm and be reasonable and everything will be fine again because it's our president being calm and being reasonable isn't something he does very well um but i mean that's kind of what the the role is and, and again speaking you know from from my employer at boise state i mean that's exactly what our, our president and provost have sent messages out here and said hey be calm be reasonable use best practices plan for the worst hope for the best but nobody freak out and that's kind of what leadership should be doing right now even though it's not necessarily coming across that way Great. Well, uh, that wraps up our discussion on coronavirus. Stay tuned. uh, Right after this at four o'clock, the Common Land podcast will be back with a live discussion. It's an awesome podcast. You got to listen. So uh, hang tight. And uh, you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise.